The Humanist Being presents When Humanists Attack. Roger Kimball Smith here for When Humanists Attack, striving to make humanist interventions in the cultural theater of world entertainment war. This podcast is a project of The Humanist Being, a nonprofit incorporated in the state of Vermont. Find out more at thehumanistbeing.org. On this episode of When Humanists Attack, what makes us human? I mean, what makes us humanist is one thing. We're not subscribing to the Western religions. We favor a secular look at the meaning of life and humanity. But what is being human all about? What makes us human? Vincent Downing, what do you think on that question? I'm going to have to say, for me, it comes down to uh, self-consciousness. In other words, there is something that it is like to be uh, not only me, but that there is something that it is like to be me as a human being that is hmm. distinct from a jaguar. And I'm willing to concede as soon as poked that that is uh, a variable thing. Like was my, uh, my loved one who succumbed to Alzheimer's and had no verbal skills left, was she still a human being? I would say yes. Um, but there's a lot to be argued about there that that's my best answer right now i love it it is a doozy of a question isn't it and i'm yeah. i'm not going to try to answer it myself instead i want to introduce our guest from whom i'm borrowing the question thank you vincent thinker writer scholar Uriel abulov teaches poli sci government and international affairs at prestigious universities including tel aviv university in his home country of israel Princeton University, where he's a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson School, and Cornell University, where I caught up with him during the summer of 2022, while he was teaching an interdisciplinary course called What Makes Us Human? An Existential Journey Amidst Crises. He's taught the same material in online ed under the name Human Odyssey to Political Existentialism or Hope. His books include The Mortality and Morality of Nations and Living on the Edge, The Existential Uncertainty of Zionism. So, Urel Abulov, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much for being here. Well, So, why don't we start just by uh, telling us what we should know about how you... Uh, got on the path to becoming a thinker and and contemplating humanity and big concepts like that? What a big question. How did it start? I don't know. I guess that maybe it started by, started by me being lonely <laughs> as mm -hmm. a boy. I think that my friends were mostly books. And mm -hmm. in the books, I found adventures, ideas, emotions, and sort of whirlwind of consciousness. And I guess that I was trying to better understand myself and everything, everyone around me. But it took some time, took decades for me to realize that there was a sort of a thread going throughout my reading, 
writing, thinking, feeling, which is in one way or another about what makes us human. I, I mean, it's such a big topic, and you have uh, uh, many other interests that you have written about and studied about, uh, it, but it seems like now, at this point in your career, you're, it, it has gone back to what seems like the original question about being human. I think it was always there. I think it doesn't matter what aspect um, I touch upon. It's somehow all tied up to that big quandary of who we are, of what we are. That has been there all along. I think I have a sort of a almost instinctive aversion to think of us as just puppets, in a sense. I think that sometimes in uh, the social sciences, we tend to see people as puppets. You know, we are being uh, pushed and pulled of, of, by... Of whatever forces we, we believe are organizing the thing. Exactly. Whatever that might be. So you might believe, for example, that your actions are governed by the selfish gene. Right? Mm -hmm. You are born in a certain way, it's in your DNA, and you are effectively a slave of, of that inheritance that you carry with you. And look, to a large extent, this is absolutely the case. We do have DNA in us, obviously. There is an element of the selfish gene in virtually all organisms. But there is more to human than just that. And I think that this is what I seek, the human edge, that thing that sets us apart and potentially can bring us together. Things that set us apart and bring us together. This is kind of uh, one of the lines you use for to overarch yes, your, yes. your project. Uh, yeah. And of course, also, the first thing I saw uh, by you was your blog by the name Sapienism. Right. Uh, could you give us a, a quick gloss on how you how you define or, or use this wonderful term? So the subtitle reads, uh, Living Up to Our Humanity. You know, if you think about the ways that we can realize our humanity, right? What does it mean to realize our humanity? So, so one facet is what we mentioned before, right? Realizing in terms of understanding, going back to the question of how are we uniquely human, right? These mm -hmm. distinctive features. That's basically grasping at, but also realizing in terms of fulfilling our potential. Mm -hmm. So there is something about that gift, and it doesn't matter what we think about the origins of the gift. It can be divine, as some people believe, or it can be just happenance in the overall, maybe cosmic process of evolution. But we ended up having that thing. And I think that mm -hmm. we should tap into that potential and just make the most out of it. And also, I think, in terms of the blog and other things that I'm doing, realizing our humanity also in the sense of realizing we're all in it together. Right, and maybe this is partly driven by you know my sense as a boy being a bit lonely with my own thoughts, uh, but whatever the psychological background to it, the end result is an attempt to try and foster some sort of um, interconnectedness in our life, and it's partly based on the fact that yes, we are all human. We all know even instinctively what it means to be human. We should, I think, be able to uh, reach out to others, extending our hands, our minds, our hearts to fully understand that even in our darkest hour, we're not there alone. I think it, it is a good way of opening because it, uh, it sounds like that what you're saying is that the whole intellectual project of you know, finding a root or a source for human behavior uh, has also always been for you something that ought to uh, be a source of interconnection. 
Yes, yes, I think so. I think that in, in some ways this is realization again that I've reached later in life. Uh, the more I thought about it, uh, especially in recent years, the more I realized that this is a driving force, or at least an, an important driving force for what I'm trying to do. There is an interesting aspect to it that I've come to increasingly realize coming to the U.S. You know, I'm an Israeli scholar. You can hear it in my accent. Mm-hmm. And um, in many ways, I'm a foreigner to this country and in some aspects to its, cultures, to its culture as well. And I've heard a lot in the U.S. You obviously hear that in Israel too, but in the U.S. it's very pronounced among many people, but especially perhaps among my students, I've seen that, you know, emphasizing independence. They want to be independent. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about that craving and that concept of independence, the more I realized that there's something odd and even off about it because we're never independence. We never are in a state where we have no dependencies. We are all very much embedded in interdependency through and through. And I guess that one of the things that I'm trying to understand myself and perhaps um, try to rethink our craving for independence. Where is this coming from? And, and if this is really what we want. Well, to as opposed to freedom. Yes. Which, of course, is also you know, yes. a very uh, fraught and important rhetorical term in America, but also in your work and in the other uh, tool, I guess, or, or model or source that you uh, have used, which is existentialism. Mm-hmm. I, I, I went back... Uh, to my first exposure to existentialism, Sartre's uh, essay from 1945, Existentialism is a Humanism, mm-hmm. thinking how, you know, all right, how can I connect these two terms? You know, some of the existentialists were uh, quite religious, but Sartre says existentialism is very compatible with atheism. Mm-hmm. You know, all right, the man first exists, encounters himself, emerges in the world to be defined afterwards. Thus, there is no human nature since there is no God to conceive it. It is man who conceives himself. We are alone without excuses, condemned to be free. So I guess that means, you know, you can't appeal to any moral system. You can only invent the path for yourself. But then Sartre says this is a kind of humanism. Right, right. Condemned to be free. <laughs> yeah. To try and embrace the full burden of that. I, I think it's it's remarkable. You know, I have my uh, sort of debates with the Sartre on that, but I think he was right on point in terms of emphasizing the um, trouble that we're facing in some ways um, after what Nietzsche dubbed the death of God. Mm-hmm. And our constant search for meaning in what might be a meaningless universe. If God is dead, perhaps never was alive, but as Nietzsche said, we killed God, right? It wasn't an accident that killed God. It was human (laughs) intention behind it. And that, of course, goes back to that notion of freedom and of choice. And I think that one of the important things that I'm trying at least to, to illustrate and to stress in my study is the difference that I'm making, and, and we can you know deliberate that and maybe debate that, between liberty and freedom. I think Ooh. that the two are very much apart, although we use them interchangeably, of course, often right, enough in this course. It's hard for a Yankee audience to hear, but go <laughs> on. I know, I know. And, and that is true also in France as well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You have liberté, and it is used mm-hmm. for liberty and freedom as well. 
And so Sartre himself, of course, um, speaking and writing in French, was not making the distinction that I'm offering. But I think that some of our confusion is driven by not noticing the important distinction between the two. And I think it's also responsible for the fact that existentialism in many ways has fallen out of favor, you know? We had the peak time, obviously, after the Second World War, with Sartre, Albert Camus, and others, obviously drawing on uh, literature preceding them. Nietzsche is one of them, Kierkegaard, others. You can go back to the biblical Ecclesiastes if you want to have some of the um, more religious uh, underpinning of that perception. But it has, in many ways, fallen out of favor. Uh, I think that during the pandemic, we've seen a certain rise in the interest in existentialism. But we haven't seen a lot of uh, fresh thoughts that are existentialist in that mm. regard. We have seen more people returning back to the old literature, trying to either introduce it and to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is some deep insight there that we can tap into and maybe bring back to life and take a step or even a couple of steps further. And that's partly what I'm trying to do, also by distinguishing liberty and freedom. Uh, well, what seems like the new wrinkle to me is to append it with the word political. Can you uh, mm, explain right, to me how, right. you know, what's political existentialism? Right. I understand the framework, you know, as regards the individual facing the universe, but, it, uh, I mean, you're trying to apply the same concepts to group behavior, right. large groupings like nations. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, does a nation's existence precede its essence? Like, what, what mm -hmm. are you doing? What An excellent this? question, yeah. Wow, uh, <laughs> it's a lot. Okay, so one way to look at it, uh, to tap back to that distinction between liberty and freedom, which might illustrate the point. Um, the way I see it, the key political questions that we have been engaging in, in one way or another, is the question of liberty. And I'll try to explain. Isaiah Berlin, a famous British philosopher, said in a very famous essay that we have basically positive and negative liberty. And he distinguished between the two, saying that positive liberty is about who controls things. Negative liberty is by asking, what do you control? Okay? Hmm. And there is a voluptuous literature on exactly that distinction. What I think some people have missed is that in one way or another, basically Isaiah Berlin also equated liberty with control. Basically, the question of control is, the question of liberty, is who controls what? This is what you ask when you ask questions of liberty. Who controls what? And some political ideology, some political system would like the individual, the authoritarian leader to control everything. Some other political systems and ideologies would allow the people to control more. Right? So there is a lot of political debates on who controls what. But one way or another, when we think about politics, we think about control and thus think about liberty. Because we ultimately see politics as a battle for power, a struggle for power in the public sphere. And power is basically control. Power is control over people. So all of that, when we think about politics, is deeply entwined with liberty as control. Now what I'm suggesting is that politics is not just about that. Because if politics is just about that, then political scientists like myself should be just as well studying, you know, a pack of wolves. Non-human animals are struggling over power, over control too, right? There's nothing distinctively human about the struggle over power, about who controls what. This is what organisms everywhere are doing. 
Mm-hmm. So why and wouldn't just in Orwell novels? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So why wouldn't us political scientists study those animals too? Because I think, beyond the obvious, is that we sense that there is something different about us. But I don't think that we study that deep enough. And the thing I think that stands at the heart of what makes us human is freedom, reflection, choice, acting upon it, taking responsibility for it. But really at the heart mm. of it is the element of choice. Mm. So freedom is a choice. But here I is the catch. The word in my mind is agency. Does that fit in? Agency, which couple choice with a sense of capacity to put it forth, right? right? To make a change. Now, here is the interesting element, or at least one of the interesting elements. My liberty is up to you. In many ways, my capacity to control this, that, or whatever is up to other people. It is negotiated. Coercion, for example, is something that you can use in order to curtail my liberties, my control, right? Mm-hmm. Freedom is a different thing. Freedom is entirely up to me. It's the ex- in the studio, us discussing, right? At this moment, you can just tell me, you know what, this is too boring. I'm ending the conversation right now. This is your choice. <laughs> but, and we are I, interdependent in that respect. <laughs> entirely, right? And I can do the same. I can say, okay, enough is enough, goodbye. I'm not going to do it. But once I become aware of that through the unique human faculty of imagination, then I have exercised a choice. Okay, now I'm choosing to stay here in the studio talking with you. Okay, Mm -hmm. But often enough, so often in life, we tell ourselves that there is no choice. We tell ourselves, um, I must instead of I choose. We tell ourselves, I cannot instead of I refuse. This is the sort of stuff that we see again and again in our personal life and in our political life. We Mm -hmm. often enough commit the most heinous crimes against humanity on a daily basis by depriving from ourselves our unique human capacity to make a choice. Now, why is that deeply political? Think about where I'm coming from in Israel, right? We had a host of violent interactions with our neighbors and within. Often enough, wars were described as wars of no choice. Hmm. We are now starting a war of no choice. We have no choice but to start, or engaging a war from choice. I see. Bad faith, it has an allure that is very hard to withstand. Because once you're saying to people, you have no choice but, there it is. Of course you have to do it. There is no choice. Think about Hollywood films, superhero films. So often enough, you would hear at a very important moment when the hero is you know, standing in a crossroad, whether to do this or to do that, and he will be saying to whomever is asking him, I have no choice. I have to do it. Well, of course you have a choice. <laughs> but saying that you have no choice provides a certain aura of importance to that, where in fact, if you want to emphasize your humanity, emphasize the choice, emphasize the dilemma, sometimes the moral dilemma, engage that. Reason why you have taken A rather than B. Not simply say, I have no choice. And I think that so much of our politics is plagued by that. So in my political existentialism, I'm trying to analyze that, to understand that. The origins, where it takes us, what we can do about it. I see. And uh, and so it sounds like uh, my intuition was correct that the idea of bad faith is very much at the center. I mean, that's the main thing I remember from my encounter with Sartre in my teens was thinking, yeah, so absolute freedom and 
absolute responsibility that is the other side of that coin. And then the issue of bad faith. I mean, is it is basically denial of responsibility? Exactly, exactly. And it's a self-denial, right? Mm-hmm. That's the interesting aspect to it. Basically, in so many ways, freedom is entirely up to us. So you could be, in, and Sartre gives that example, you can be in a prison cell. Now, you know, in my vocabulary, I would say that you have been deprived of your liberties, right? In terms of who controls what? Okay, so okay. you control very little in a prison cell. But you still have choice. You still can imagine yourself trying to escape. Do something about it, you know, in, in all likelihood you will fail. But you have the capacity to make a choice because you are human. However, bad faith, often enough, we deny our own humanity. We deny our own capacity to make a choice. We go about life, you know, going through the motions. Do this, do that, because, you know, this is how it's done. Or blaming others. Blaming you know, others, I of mean, course. I would say... Right, shirking sure responsibility. I don't, yeah. I don't know enough about Israeli politics, but, uh, you know, in this country, it seems like bad faith has become almost really the overwhelming trait of our political system. Like, on one side of the proverbial aisle, mm-hmm. we have a party that has made complete irresponsibility its dominant trait. You know, it, no responsibility to govern the country, no mm-hmm. responsibility to conserve a habitable planet, uh, you know, just outlaws and mafiosos. Uh, maybe the other party are in bad faith when they say, we can't get anything done because this other party is blocking it all. Shirking responsibility, blaming the other. It's very much part of that. And I would go a step further and say that we sometimes within both camps, right, both the conservative and the liberals are doing certain things because this is how it's done, because this is how our peers judge us, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this is our milieu, this is our bubble. It feels righteous to do certain things, but it blocks our mind from the possibility to see that, in fact, we do face, we do face daily dilemmas. On a moment-to-moment basis, we have potential dilemmas if we only care to embrace them. But freedom is a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden for all of us. The the other way of conceiving freedom is uh, as creativity, you know, ability to innovate, to think outside boxes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the... And this is perhaps taking it a bit uh, further into philosophy. Carl Jasper mentioned the concept of uh, of existence with a Z in order to make that sort of creative edge to it. And I, in my writing, uh, speak occasionally on coexistence with Z. Again, but coexistence, mm-hmm. right? The possibility to co-create something together. Again, trying to make the existentialist project not just about the solitary individual in the way that sometimes it is looked uh, on, but an ongoing social project. Um, it's also part of our really personal daily lives. When you think about love, right? Something that is important to all of us when we think about happiness, when you think about hope. You don't have to speak specifically about politics in order to understand that existentialism can have social resonance, right? So what does love mean, for example, through an existentialist perspective? What does happiness mean through that perspective? And death that are so important to us personally, I think we should think about them more through that lens that emphasizes our unique humanity. Okay, well, so this, it's such a broad and, you know, kind of intimidating question (laughs) on the one hand, but then, you know, I suppose we all also uh, are authorities on Mm -hmm. it experientially. uh, And, you know, I was very interested in how you design and guide the inquiry for your students. Uh, in, the, in the opening lecture of the online HOPE course, Human Odyssey to Political Existentialism, 
you, you pose it this way. Some of the things you might think of right away uh, as candidates for what makes us human are qualities we share with other animals, which makes sense. Is, you know, we know uh, over 90% of our gene sequences are shared with mm-hmm. other apes. Yep. Well, while other qualities, say you know, formal logic, the highest mental capacities, are things that you could say we share with machines, mm-hmm. neural networks, et cetera. Precisely. So, I mean, this is perhaps, uh, it suggests an almost kind of Hegelian dialectic between, you know, maybe carbon-based and silicon-based mm-hmm. types of evolution. Is that, is that your intention? And, and where do you stand, by the way, on this question of, of transhumanism or, or transcending our little uh, meat sacks of bodies? Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And I think that one of the things that fascinates me most is to emphasize mm-hmm. our uniqueness. But I think we are fascinated by the possibility that we are not. And I wonder why. Um, you know, one of... Uh, to a certain extent, you can say my peers in Israel, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, wrote a very famous book about the history of humanity. And he emphasized uh, very clearly in that book the biological, not just origins of our humanity, but the way that, to a large extent, they still dictates what we do and how we act. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I find fascinating in our fascination with this sort of account is that to a certain extent, it allows us to, in some ways at least, again, shirk responsibility. Because if we are just animals, or if we are just machines, we don't have to care so much about the choices that we're making. We can just try to tap into what is, in the first case, natural. Or in the second case, proves an illustration of high intelligence. Let's make it more concrete. How should we decide on... uh, Climate change, for example, right? I mean, we humans have become agents in our own destruction. Mm-hmm. But how should we approach that? If it's all a matter of intelligence, maybe humans should not be the one deciding that, right? Maybe we should just build supercomputer with everything that we can offer in terms of computating uh, power and just allow the computer to decide for us. Hmm. And if you go to whatever sort of moral dilemma they be asking themselves, well, what is the natural thing to do? As if for humans, the natural should dictate what we ought to be doing. And my argument here is that, no, what sets us apart is exactly the fact that we do not have to yield to natural selection in terms of our Hmm. evolution. We can also subscribe to human choice because we are the makers of ourselves to a large extent. Yes, we cannot reinvent ourselves entirely, but we have the capacity to do what other non-humans animals cannot. And so, for me, this should be the emphasis. And in some ways, I would say this. Many people these days uh, are afraid of machines becoming human-like. What terrifies me is the exact opposite, is humans becoming machine-like. And I think Mm -hmm. that we've seen ourselves again and again yielding to those aspects. To think Mm. of self as just animals. This is just what we are. Or as simply machines. And even if we don't think that consciously, sometimes we yield to acting in such a way. Well, I guess I believe that a large part of what's important about being human is being an animal. Mm -hmm. You know, and if if the whole inquiry is based on identifying what we've got or what we do that no other animal's got or no other creature does... 
that it could end up distorting the full picture, you know, for, for just starting with the, the fundamental fact of being alive. You know, it's not unique that we're alive, but it mm-hmm. is fundamental. Yes, <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think that um, a grave danger that lurks to my own project is forgetting that part of it, mm-hmm. right? Forgetting that we're also all of that. Right? That we are also animals, that we share things with animals and we share obviously things with machines as well. I guess that in my emphasis to try and emphasize human uniqueness, I'm trying somehow to balance or to rebalance. Right. It, is, it is a Hegelian setup. Yes, right. yes. I mean, I imagine that uh, the next step should be to try and reach a certain synthesis between the two, which is something that I'm trying as well. But definitely my heart is with our human uniqueness rather than with aspects that we share with animals. So when I study animal behavior, I care to see not just what we share with them, but also the sort of things that we do not. Um, You know, in my last day, one of our last classes that we have, I am teaching a summer course here, we engage the question of death. Yeah. uh, Mortality. So one very distinctive, supposedly distinctive human behavior uh, characteristic is the fact that we are aware of our mortality. We know yeah. that we're going to die. As far as we know, animals do not have that awareness. So this, uh, is, this is a candidate for for what Urael thinks makes us human. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think that, uh, and this is universal, right? This is across our species. Mm-hmm. Kids at a certain age, usually at the age of five to seven, grasp that that we are mortal. And sometimes they are deeply disturbed by that, sometimes not, but they do realize that we're going to die. Uh, another related question that uh, we discussed was the question of suicide. One of the things that sets humans apart is the fact that well, while we are not uh, choosing to be born, that's not for us, right? Someone mm-hmm. else chose that for us, but we can choose to end our life. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes then, do animals have the same sort of capacity? Do animals commit suicide? And I think that from all the studies that uh, I've looked into, the answer is probably no. So that's, again, another unique human feature. So yes, we do, like other animals, born without a choice, right? We are organisms. We are alive. This is, again, something that we share with animals. For example, we are afraid, like anim- other animals are. We do not want to feel pain. No animals does, right? Especially mammals, where you can actually see the, the aspects of that very clearly, because... Many of them do have emotions. We know that now for sure. There is nothing uniquely human in having emotions, being afraid, for example. But humans are unique in having certain aspects of fear, right? Uh, The way that we turn our fright, the visceral reaction, into anxiety. We can imagine certain things, even if they are not there, Hmm. and become haunted by those anxieties. Hmm. So kind Which of is the, the psychic cooking mm-hmm. of raw emotion. Yeah, exactly. And we do that marvelously. Again, <laughs> using our language, our imagination, everything that is us in order to create this mental infrastructure that sometimes bury us, hmm. but might also be the things that can help us rebuild ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you titled a book, uh, The Mortality and Morality of nations, and and my supposition is this is not just wordplay. You really do believe mortality and morality are closely related. So can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, You were asking before about the political edge to all of that and connecting the individual, the private, to the public. 
So one of the questions that I've asked myself is, okay, so we are mortal, right? As individuals, we are mortal. We know we're going to die. What are we going to do about that? What have we been doing about that? Now, we have been doing a lot of stuff on a private sphere. For example, we bring kids into this world, right? That's one reaction to our awareness to mortality because we are perpetuating in one way or another ourselves. The selfish gene and all that jazz, perfectly fine. <laughs> but we're also doing something political. We are also creating communities. We're creating tribes. We're creating nations, civilizations, states. And partly we are creating that because those are symbols of immortality. You create a people, you create a nation, you create a nation state. And you can say, well, I will be passing. I will die 20, 30, 40 years from now, maybe two hours from now. But the nation will live on. And you hold on to that sense, to that mental state of perpetuation. And it's a sort of perpetuation project. Every polity is a perpetuation project in that regard. Okay. You hold on to that for dear life and say, okay, at least there is that. But... I ask myself, what happens when that collective too feels itself to be mortal? When that collective too sense that it lives on the edge? And that, I think, is exactly the case of Israel as a Jewish state. Israeli Jews have been walking about with a sense of gloom and doom for much of the state's existence and even before that. And, you know, I wrote this book a couple of years ago and you know, in recent years, we've seen this sense going about mushrooming, mushrooming on a global scale. People that see humanity itself, the human species, as mortal, right. thinking that the whole thing might end. And so how do we face that sense of mortality? Partly, I answer in that book and in some other writings, by morality. Partly by trying to find meaning. Meaning in the sense of reasoned purpose a justified purpose that we can hold on to and say, well, this might pass, but there is a good enough reason to own people. Is there a justification for the very existence, for the continued existence of a Jewish state? But we might just as well ask that about humanity. If our species, if us, basically, are destroying ourselves and our planet and all the other species on it, what justifies our existence? Would we like to see a scenario in which humanity passes away? Maybe we should commit a sort of a global universal suicide in order to save the planet from ourselves. And in that regard, I think... <laughs> it seems like it's being cooked up in Ukraine. In, in some ways, this is exactly what we're doing, unwittingly, right? Mm -hmm. Unwittingly. But I think that we should become more aware to exactly those sort of dilemmas, right? Going back to what we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But I on, suppose there's also the possibility of, you know, a, a kind of evolutionary project that would, of course, be a moral project as mm -hmm. well of, 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 you know, actually finding a sustainable path. Right. Mm -hmm. That would be the optimistic scenario. Right. That would be the right? highly moral project. Right. Yeah. But again, the question becomes whether we have the agency required, again, the choice and the capacity sure. to fulfill it in order to make such things happen. Right, because we also have all these institutions, which, you know, they, <laughs> they're not conscious of their mortality, are they? They are not, but again, institutions are not humans, right? Right. Humans are, and because institutions are humanized by humans, that we sometimes do see those institutions, and again, states as well, as mortal unit. In some ways, the Soviet Union at the time, right, the early 1990s, committed suicide, willingly. And mm -hmm. 
over overwhelming of nations for sure. Exactly, exactly. It's a state basically deciding. Of course, not the state itself. I, I do not want to anthropomorphize the state, but mm-hmm. the leaders and the people basically decided to commit a political suicide in that regard. There is no more Soviet Union, okay? And that was partly driven, not exclusively, but partly driven by those sense of consideration. Moral consideration, considerations about identity, about who we are, about what we want, what we choose in our life. And of course, okay, in recent certainly. years, Putin managed to um, use that or abuse that more, more correctly mm-hmm. in order to um, boost, I think, quite substantially his own ego, but, but also that of the people which is always part of wh- who we are, right? We also seek power. I don't want by emphasizing choice to in any way dismiss the fact that people also want power. And it is part of our life as humans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the awkward part, or the, the part that's close close to the reptilian. <laughs> yes, yes. Because again, this is something that uh, effectively all organisms in one way or another share, Right. We mm. do want that. And mm. I guess in our case, it becomes more complicated because sometimes we want power because of certain reasons, because of certain uh, origins that are uniquely human. So we mentioned, for example, before that overall with organisms, you have fright, right? Organisms have a sense of fright, of visceral immediate reaction to threats. But with humans, we have much more that sense of anxiety. It can be a lingering imagination about those various threats. But mm-hmm. what is interesting about us humans in that regard is that sometimes we take that anxiety as a major source for seeking something that is more non-human animalistic, right? Seeking power. You want power in order to assuage in one way or another your anxiety. And we do that privately. We do that politically as well. Hmm. Yeah, so the mental, the mental space. I mean, another uh, candidate that I would propose uh, is language. You know, I, I had a professor in graduate school who wrote about the distinction between signals and symbols. You know, there's symbolic language, a representational mm-hmm. language goes beyond the ways that we know other animals communicate. Mm-hmm. It creates a whole representational world. You know, I, that's probably number one on my list. Uh, how do you see it? And, oh, and speaking of representation, what about art? Yes, yes, that, that's, that's a wonderful aspect to it, right? So first of all, you're absolutely right, right? Symbolic language and the fact that it's uh, really at the heart of culture. And then the question becomes, can animals share culture? Can animals create culture? And there's a, an ongoing uh, um, debate among scholars to the extent that animals can create culture. Um, I think that there are aspects of culture that animals are capable of, but humans definitely take it uh, many steps Further, and art is one of that manif- one of those manifestations, and it can be high art and it could be uh, you know popular culture, but in all of those elements, I see something that is not apart, as far as I'm concerned, from science. It's the way that we seek to better understand ourselves and the world. It's simply that science and art go about different ways to to grasp that sense. Other too, I think, often enough, is trying to tap into the human condition, and science social sciences, the human sciences, I would say, should at least try to achieve that. Sometimes I feel like art is doing even a better work than us, scholar, mm-hmm. in that endeavor. Um, sometimes just reading a book, a poem, uh, watching a film, a TV show, whatever, you have a better understanding of human nature than you can with scholarly work. 
And I think uh, we scholars should be rising up to that challenge. Well, it certainly has a, f- you know, a freer, a sense of, of, of a, uh, a freer canvas to paint on. I, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, to what extent, if we compare artists and scholars, do they feel that... Um, well, one question is the extent to which their menu is rich enough that they can choose whatever they want, but even more importantly, that they can create their own menu. Yeah. Uh, who feels more limited, in a sense, we can ask, uh, artists or scholars? It's hard for me to to answer that question. Um, because I imagine that many artists, too, feel like there are certain patterns that, in order to be successful, they perhaps should follow certain networks that they should tap into. And mm. you have that in academia as well, right? I but mean, so many of the revered artists we revere because we can recognize the way they broke. Exactly, the most, exactly. They broke out. Yes, yes, exactly that. But but that's a, obviously a risky endeavor. Mm-hmm. And it's a risky endeavor for artists. It's a risky endeavor for, for academics to do the extraordinary. It, it comes with a price, often enough. I'll go back to language because uh, as I was thinking about it, it raised a question for me about how science fits into your inquiry. I mean, separate from the whole question of, of science being a thing that makes us human. That's not what I'm getting at mm-hmm. here. Uh, I mean, you, you, I don't know the science, but you probably do. But isn't it true that the human brain evolved as language developed? Essentially, mm. uh, you know, uh, in concert i mean mean, it gives me the idea that that you could attempt uh, not just to discern what traits are uniquely human but just kind of thinking about it but but also look at when and how those traits appear in the evolutionary record you know when we crossed over yeah i wish i wish we had answers to that but uh, as far as my research goes i don't think that we do i we do not have concrete evidence that goes back say one hundred thousand years to the means of our evolution, right? The Homo sapiens is about 200 or perhaps 300,000 years old. Yeah. We do not have evidence that go back so back in time to allow us to understand where exactly this came about and when uh, did we see the human mind co-evolving with language. But what we know for now at least is that the human brain, the brain of the Homo sapiens, emerged about that time. And language, Mm -hmm. for all we know, evolves much later. So there is some element of coevolution, but it hasn't appeared as substantial as what made us the Homo sapiens that we are. So we're basically drawing on a certain hardware that was already, in most senses, already there about 200,000 years ago, drawing on that hardware in order to develop the software that includes our unique capacity for language. Mm -hmm. Right? And again, language is unique because while animals can communicate, language allows you an infinite uh, possibilities in terms of combination. Right. Right. Language has uh, that aspect of finite number of components that allows for infinite numbers of possibilities. That is the uniqueness of the human way of communication of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, then, you know, uh, what... what written language does, which is, I guess, a small subset of mm-hmm. it, is, you know, makes history uh, possible, yep. you know? I guess what I'm, what I'm asking for, that the kind of inquiry that would, that would go back to the prehistoric uh, is very difficult from a scholarly 
perspective. But uh, but I mean, could it be that modern life uh, partakes less of what's quintessentially human than our ancient or archaic ancestors' lives did? You know, could it be we took a wrong turn somewhere? <laughs> Interesting. You're suggesting that perhaps uh, our ancestors were more human. Than we are, or that the things that make us human might have been, uh, hmm. you know, would have stood out more, as we were closer to our evolutionary ancestors. That's an interesting question. I I wonder if that's the case. You know, I guess one piece of evidence that would have been wonderful to have, and currently we don't have, is the sort of mental distinctiveness, right? Not the biological one, but mental distinctiveness. between the Homo sapiens and other akin species, the Neanderthals, for example, right? right? We know how to tap into the, somewhat at least, to the biology, the distinct biology of the Homo sapiens and other uh, relatives that we've had for um, millions of years, in fact. But we know very little about the mental distinctiveness. So can we say, for example, that the Neanderthals, and we're only speaking about... Uh, 30,000 years or so that we still had them around as you know mm-hmm. neighbors and sometimes perhaps our mates as well we have evidence for that mm-hmm. too could we say that they for example lack the mental skills for you know developing language imagination for making a choice for knowing their own mortality we probably know that they did know of their own mortality from certain burial sites mm-hmm. uh, but so many important aspects of our humanity we just don't know about other species uh, having them And I think these are you know wonderful mysteries but uh, but in terms of their usefulness for your project, I suppose that uh, it, in the light of such a limited evidentiary record, you know it's it's just as speculative as you know as armchair philosophizing would be <laughs> true, true enough, although i I like those hypotheses. I think that they serve a wonderful function. First of all, in our own life, I think we should not limit our imagination. But mm-hmm. also, I think that science should be more open to the wildest hypotheses out there. Um, even on a cosmic scale, I mean, I would, be, I would be the first to suggest, well, probably not the first to suggest, but, but I would readily suggest that there is potentially far more out there than we know. Well, um... I guess the closest I could come uh, <laughs> to uh, a continuity from that is uh, to go back, we briefly mentioned toward the beginning, the issue of religions mm. and, and deities. Yeah, there's something know. cosmic about that for sure. Uh, well, <laughs> so, so most of the religions on the planet today that have a lot of followers are, uh, you know, not much more than a couple of millennia old. Uh, you know, perhaps some indigenous Beliefs and practices may be a little older, possibly a lot older. Uh, but so let me ask you how you incorporate religious behavior or the religious impulse into the study of what makes us human. Right. This is definitely one of the things that makes us human, right? Mm-hmm. Religion and in the monotheistic sense, uh, belief in God. As I mentioned before, I'm agnostic, but I come from a religious family, mm-hmm. right? Um, my parents, some of my siblings are uh, clearly religious. And it's interesting for me occasionally to note that sometimes it's it's almost easier for me to talk about this stuff with believers hmm. because for them in one way or another, for many of them at least, the questions are still relevant. 
the questions mm. that goes for the almost transcendental look on the human condition. So, yes. Whereas humanists are more resistant, you find? Um, contemporary, secular, and sometimes postmodern uh, um, um, thinkers would look at the human condition with sometimes less of an interest. The sort of uh, forces that I mentioned before that push and pull us, the people as puppets sort of paradigm, is very dominant, I think, today in mm. the human sciences, mm. large because they help us resolve a lot of issues, obviously. Um, and, you know, I mentioned the selfish gene, but this is just one example, right? right. Uh, there is the example of Determinants the... Determinants of right, various in, in, stripes. Of various stripes, exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the homo economicus, we're just about cost-benefit mm -hmm. calculations, right? And even people are trying to push against that, that are trying to emphasize the emotional part, you know, behavioral economics, that mm. do a lot of that stuff which is perfectly fine. But of course, again, we share emotions with animals. And right. so their belief in the homopsychologicals, right, that we are governed by our emotions. In all of those aspects, these are forces, again, beyond our control and, and our choice. And with religion, because you have God out there, God is supposedly that force. And for them, it was an ongoing quandary for many religious people. It was an ongoing quandary. Where is human freedom in all of that? Right? If God controls everything, mm. right? Go back to the question of liberty. Who controls what? Right. So the often monotheistic answer to that is God. Everything. <laughs> God controls everything. Mm. So what room does it leave it for humans? Of simplicity. Yeah, 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 for sure. But what room is for free will in the religious context? And so I think it's fascinating to try and interacting that sort of conversation with people who hold fast to those beliefs. And I think that's one of the things that we do like in our society is exactly that sort of dialogue. And, you know, in contemporary American settings, I think we can see that about the recent ruling of the Supreme Court. Right? There are two very clear camps here. And there is almost, as far as I can see, again, as an outside observer in, outside observer in many ways, there is no actual conversation it's, going on. There yeah. has been a failure of dialogue. Yeah. Yes, and I think a willing one. I think that uh, both, oh, I think both uh, liberals and conservatives, in so many ways, prefer to disengage, prefer to um, almost trap themselves in righteous cocoon. Because again, as I mentioned before, it helps us feel good about ourselves and it helps us shirk responsibility. Mm. So I have a question about the, the whole sort of line of inquiry about what makes us human as regards existentialism. I mean, I, I wonder if you think I'm playing with words or is there something to this? Is there a difference between trying to define what makes us human and trying to define an essence, you know, as existentialism uses the word essence? Right. Uh, that's a wonderful question. So, you know, one of the famous uh, quotes by Sartre is that existence precedes essence. Right. And in the case of humans, we have to create our own sense of purpose. This is why mm. for him, existence in the sense of freedom, of choice, of creating ourselves, precedes essence. Because you have no essence. But of mm -hmm. course, in some ways, and this can be a critique vis-a-vis -vis Sartre, in some essence, he's basically saying that freedom is the essence of humans. And, you know, in some ways, it's almost like are humans more like artichokes or onions? 
right? Do they have a core or don't they have a core? <laughs> right? And I would mm-hmm. like to think of humans as lacking that sort of core. You know, it goes back to one of the most, I think, fascinating questions, authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be the case, and we know that, of course, from Greek mythology, that the big imperative was know thyself, right? Okay. We, should, we should know ourselves. Know thyself. This is what the Oracle of Delphi was telling people. Mm-hmm. Know thyself. Nowadays, we say increasingly, more and more, be thyself. Mm. You know, be yourself. Mm. And sometimes in a sort of a new age uh, vocabulary, almost uh, love thyself, right? We should love ourselves in order to handle various uh, mental aspects of our life. But let's focus on a moment on that authentic imperative, be thyself. What does it mean? Do you have a certain core inside Mm -hmm. that you were possibly born with, you had no control and choice over, and now you just have to tap into that, right? You have to know yourself, Right, to know that core, basically. And then mm-hmm. you have to be yourself. You have to live up to that core, whatever that core might be. You know, It might be that your core is to be a musician. Okay, yeah. perfectly fine. So be yourself, meaning that you should be a musician. Well, I would think it's overcoming the negative liberty. Right, the, the obstacles on the right. way, right? Right, mm-hmm. exactly. In order to make that happen. But of course, if you do not have that core, if you were not born or meant to be a musician, then, then what are you? What does it mean even to be yourself in a universe where you are not predetermined in one way or another to be something, that you are something? Creating yourself is, it can be exhilarating, but in some ways, for many people, also a very frightening prospect. Mm -hmm. Because it gives you a sense that perhaps there is nothing to hold on to. It gives you a sense that perhaps, and I don't know if it's a, a wonderful prospect or not, that perhaps there is no self to begin with. And this is not hallucination. Of course, when you speak about Zen Buddhism, that's exactly the proposition. The suggestion that all human suffering is coming from the illusion that there is a self. And so you have to dismantle the self in order to ease the suffering. Now, that's not my perspective. And my perspective is also that we should not run away from suffering. Mm-hmm. But you can certainly see the allure in that. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think that part of the reason that in our uh, culture today we emphasize a lot, and rightfully so, I think, in some ways, the importance of trauma. The trauma Mm -hmm. provides us with a certain core that we can return to and say, okay, we have that. Now I know why I am the way I am. Now I know what it means to be me. You can hang a story off of them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are other ways. For example, personality tests, right? I am that (laughs) sort of person. This is my category. (laughs) Right. I am that well, hey, thing. There could be astrology exactly, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and astrology the, in the same way. Now, in all of those ways, we are creating a certain anchor, a certain code, a certain core that mm. we can think through. And identity politics is so much part of it. When people are saying, as an X, mm. I think this, this, or do this and that. Okay? And it doesn't matter what the X is, you know? As an X, and I'm already putting myself inside a certain category. Yes. I will thus think whatever it is, Y, Z, etc., or do whatever it is. And so I give justification for myself to do whatever. Do you think that that claim uh, sort of uh, can be done in bad faith? It is bad faith. Okay. Identity Mm. becomes a substitution for authenticity, for existential Mm. authenticity, because you can, again, think in terms of essentialist authenticity and say there is an essential core. So because I am a woman, because I am a man, because I'm a straight or a gay, because I'm, I don't know, a white, black, or whatever, 
then whatever follows. Once I do that, once I think in terms of as and x, thus y, I effectively dehumanize myself because I'm depriving myself of the capacity, of the sense of choice in creating and recreating myself. Once we put ourselves inside the box, we deprive ourselves of our humanity because we use that box in order to explain away the sort of dilemmas, the sort of choices that we can potentially put before ourselves and say, okay, I choose A over B. Why do you want to achieve this or that? Choosing this path rather than that path. This is a hard thing to follow. Much easier is to say, as a, you know, white middle-aged professor, this is what I think, or this is what I should do. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this gets at what can we do in the here and now to become more fully human? I think the first step is exactly what we've been discussing. It's mm -hmm. the exercise of imagination in a way that works towards emphasizing those aspects of it. And, you know, it can be bright and it can be dark, mm -hmm. right? So we spoke uh, before about, you know, happiness and hope and love. All of those aspects too are part and parcel of our humanity. So think, for example, to what extent when you love someone, you engage in free love. And I'm not talking specifically about the spirits of the 60s and the 70s in that regard. But to what extent do you feel that that love is a sort of, in an almost political way of uh, putting it, is, is, a, is a daily plebiscite, right? A daily referendum hmm. of two people co-choosing one another on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. To what extent do we do that? To what extent do we fully embrace truth? rather than post-truth on our private life or political life, mm, right? Mm -hmm. This is the sort of stuff that I want us to engage with. There is nothing that is not uniquely human in subscribing to certain traditional ways. This is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. But be honest with yourself and your capacity to make a choice and say, okay, I can choose out of this tradition, but I want in. Why do I want in? And does and does this reason actually hold up to scrutiny by myself and others instead of escaping to whatever sort of bad faith category you can? And, you know, bad faith can be fatalistic, it can be deterministic, it can be essentialistic, or you can simply say that everything is random, mm -hmm. right? To simply water down the importance of, of choice. Right. So sort of basically, quasi nihilism that ex I exactly, existentialism exactly, exactly, has been accused exactly. of. Exactly. No, nothing matters, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so tempting. I think that in many ways, you know, and I've dealt a lot with hope and the politics of hope in, our, in my writing. And I think that in some ways, you know, the opposite of hope is not so much despair, but cynicism. Yeah. That is very much entwined with nihilism. The sense that, you know what? Nothing matters. Everybody are all for themselves. All they care about in that regard is really power and their own power, often enough at the expense of others. I might as well do the same. And if not, just resign myself to that faith of myself and of humanity. Now, you know what? This is possibly true to a certain extent. <laughs> but if not, and we continue to think like that, then what we are conducting is potentially a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. And that's a dangerous thing to do. I'm taking it in. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it. Uh, and it's a good note to end on. Urayel, Abulaf, thank you so much for sharing thank you. your wisdom. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>